Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are speaking with Mohsen Hamid, a best-selling, award-winning author of five novels whose work has been translated into 40 languages. If you're an OG Stacks listener, you'll know that Mohsen Hamid's 2017 novel, Exit West, was our first ever book club pick. So this conversation is extra special to me. Yes, I cried. Today, we're talking with Mosin about his latest novel, The Last White Man. It's the story of Anders, a white man who suddenly awakes one day with brown skin and feels a lot of rage towards losing his whiteness. We discuss what inspired Mosin to write this book, what is gained from losing one's whiteness, and the conversation that he feels is ongoing between author and reader. Just a heads up, there are no spoilers in today's episode. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Our book club pick for August is How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi, which we will be discussing on August 31st with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. If you love the show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join The Stacks Pack. When you join, you get access to our virtual book club meetups, the Stacks very lively and wonderful Discord chat, and our monthly bonus episodes. Last month, we talked about happy endings and romance rules with Tia Williams, the author of Seven Days in June. So if this sounds like something you'd be interested in, or you really just want to show your love for this little Black woman-run indie book podcast, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join. Thank you to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, RT and Aaron K. Doherty. Thank you all so much. And of course, like every other week, thank you, thank you, thank you to the Stacks Pack. I could not do it without y'all. And now it's time for my chat with Mohsen Hamid. All right, everybody. I say this every week, but this week I really am so excited because our guest is Mohsen Hamid, who many of you know as a fantastic writer and has a very special place in my heart because Mohsen's book Exit West was our first ever book club pick here on The Stack. So this feels like a really, I don't know, full circle moment. So Mohsen, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to talk to you today about your newest book, The Last White Man. We sort of always start here. So in about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell folks what this book is about? So The Last Last White Man begins with a young man named Anders who wakes up in his bed um, and discovers that his skin is dark. And when he went to bed the night before, 
it wasn't. He had light skin. And he shares this information with Una, a woman that he's been dating recently. And together, Una and Anders and Anders's father and Una's mother navigate a world where this predicament starts to spread. Okay. I loved this book so much. I love the idea behind it. I love your writing style. I'm a big super fan is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> but I want to know, so in we won't spoil anything. In the book, this changing from lightness to darkness sort of rolls out over time. It's not like all of a sudden everyone is dark who is light. However, it does happen overnight for every person individually. How did you think about the transition from lightness to darkness? How did you think about how this would happen in your imagination? So um, what exactly happens is intentionally left um, undisclosed in yes. the book. And, you know, what it means to become dark, how, how people look after they change, you know, how extensive is the change? Why did it happen? All of that stuff isn't answered. And so in a sense, it's left to the reader's imagination. Um, how do you think it happened? And what do you think it looks like? And why do you think it happened? But all we know is that it's happening. Right. And where did you get the idea for this book? So the, I think the book probably comes from about 20 years ago after 9-11, mm. when I was living in New York and I had gone to these elite universities and I had a well-paying job in New York City. And um, of course, I you know, would occasionally encounter some degree of discrimination, but I, I would have thought of my life as, as a fairly undiscriminated against life. Mm. You know, I could live where I wanted and travel as I wanted and things felt you know, reasonably open to me. And then almost overnight, uh, after the attacks of September 11th, 2001, things changed. So at the airport, I'd be pulled out and given enhanced security. When I flew into JFK, immigration would put me in a separate room for a few hours and grill me. I was, uh, uh, you know, pulled off an aircraft on the tarmac once. And oh my god! Yeah, you get onto, you know, you would get onto a bus with a, you know, a bit of stubble and uh, a backpack, and people would look at you nervously, or they would switch seats. And initially, I experienced this really as, you know, a sense of loss. And I wanted things to go back to the way they were. I wanted to communicate, look, I'm, I'm not threatening. I'm not somebody to be suspicious of. You don't have to be worried about me. But as, I, as the years passed and I began to ask myself, you know, what exactly did I lose? What was the thing that I lost? And I, mm -hmm. I began to think that in a sense, I'd, I'd lost a kind of partial whiteness. I mean, I'm a brown-skinned man with a Muslim name, but in America, if you, you know, have gone to particular kinds of universities and if you live in certain cities and you have a certain kind of income, and you don't fall clearly into the black-white racial binaries, at least in my case, I found that I was partaking of a lot of benefits mm -hmm. of being kind of, you know, in the dominant group, so to speak. And, and so I began to think, you know, that perhaps that's what I lost. And then to ask myself, you know, do I want that back? Mm -hmm. um, what was it to be complicit in that? You know, what was it to be part of a system where I, you know, obviously was aware of but didn't take too much note of, and didn't take, uh, didn't wasn't too invested in uh, opposing uh, the existence of that system, and perhaps you know that degree of complicity was something I should investigate in myself. You know what did it mean? And so, Anders is presented with, in a sense, a similar situation. He wakes up one day, and people look at him very differently, and he has to navigate what that means. Right. Okay. I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> okay. Let me try to work through it. My first one is about just the experience 
of all of a sudden becoming dangerous, essentially, is like kind of how you're describing, like being pulled out and all of this. Did you anticipate that after September 11th? Did you like get to the airport a few hours, extra hours early? Like, were you aware that this was going to be happening to you? Or was it something that every time it was like, what the fuck is this? Well, I think it was, in a sense, I was aware that it was likely to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, it had it had happened to a, to a light extent before. The real question was, you know, how much it was going to happen. Right. Uh, that some people would be somewhat more suspicious, sure. But that there would be an entirely new protocol. You know, for example, if you were of Pakistani origin and you flew into the airport, you had to go to a special room and register as mm-hmm. having arrived in the U.S. You know, you, you had to go uh, and do all these different things. And, you know, of course, one read about the treatment of uh, Japanese Americans in the Second World War. And not that, not that this was something equivalent, but that there were echoes throughout history of this stuff happening in the U.S. and, and of course, elsewhere. So it didn't t- totally take me by surprise. But I think the part that, it, that did take me by surprise was, you know, the notion that maybe in some way I would be partially exempt. That, mm. you know, of course, this stuff would happen <laughs> and it would happen in theory. Mm-hmm. But in practice, you know, I'm a very liberal guy. I'm right. quite personable. You know, I'm, I'm surely I'm not the kind of person you need to be afraid of. Right. And that's where it becomes so interesting uh, as an experience because, you know, you know who you are. Right. And you want to communicate who you are. But people have adopted a kind of reference point that has predefined you. And it has actually nothing to do with what you have done personally. And if you try to communicate who you are, you try to smile and try to seem unthreatening, you may come across as much more threatening. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it starts to become this this impossible situation where, you know, you're trying to say, look, I'm I'm not dangerous. And people are like, oh, what what do you mean you're not dangerous? Only a uh, dangerous person would say that. (laughs) Yeah. And and so... It was it was interesting for me because it was an introduction, in a way, to these paradoxes. Uh, it was also interesting because it wasn't just a question of uh, you know, who does one blame in this situation. You know, mm-hmm. who exactly is at fault? Um, mm-hmm. Is it the person who seems suspicious, or the person at the immigration desk, or the airport security counter, or uh, the one asking you questions? Is it you know is it me for acting in a strange way? Uh, is it society? It's unclear where you place the blame. And that, for me, was one of the most interesting parts of the experience. It, it felt like a sort of crime was being perpetrated against me. Right. But I wasn't clear if I was the criminal, if I was the innocent victim, mm. if, um, if somebody else was, was the perpetrator. It just wasn't clear where to put the blame. And I think that's, for me, a very interesting aspect of, of racial reality, is that it sort of exists, and it dehumanizes both people who experience it imposed upon them but it also despecifies who's imposing it. Like you don't know, you know, who exactly is to blame for this. And then right. all of that stuff began to, uh, to creep in, I think, to the goal. So one of the ways that you sort of, how I, well, let me just say this. As you mentioned, the book has a lot of open things. So it left a lot for me to interpret myself. So as I interpreted it, <laughs> you describe sort of the white gaze in this way where, where Anders is saying, you know, they're looking at me, So it changes how I'm looking at myself or it changes how I'm behaving and it changes how I'm acting based on the way that the people who have not yet turned dark are thinking, are looking at me and making me feel. I'm wondering if that experience for you sort of realizing your non-whiteness in a world where previously you had felt white, I'm wondering if that changed how you then looked at other people who were not white. 
Yeah, I think it did. I mean, you know, one thing I, I want to be careful with is is to draw sort of too direct a parallel between you know my experiences and Andrew's sure. experiences and other people's experiences. I think my experiences gave me a reason to want to write this book and a sort of way into it. But then when I wrote what happened to Anders, it wasn't an attempt to sort of portray what happened to me. Right. It, was, <laughs> it, was, it was a way in. And Anders' experience, of course, is in many ways very different to my own. And also, as far as I, I'm concerned, uh, it wasn't that I thought that I was white. It was quite clear to me that I wasn't white. It was just the degree of significance of my particular way of not being mm. white was not that great. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, I would never have said, oh, I'm white. But I would have thought, oh, my particular non-whiteness isn't that important to people most right. of the time. Uh, and now it's become much more important. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, so I think, I think there's, there's that kind of a distinction. I, I, I sometimes you know, think of this entire experience a little bit in, in COVID-19 terms, oh. where you know, when the pandemic began, it seemed before we had vaccinations and before we had uh, uh, medicines against it, it seemed that what happened to people is the virus would, would come into your body and your body wouldn't know what it was, what, what it was. And so it was somewhat invisible to immune system. Mm-hmm. And then when your immune system finally recognized it, it would overreact and attack itself and, and damage your own lungs and your own organs. And I think in some ways, um, racial relations are a bit, can be a bit like that, that there's a sense of both being invisible, not seen, um, and then suddenly being seen in a catastrophic way, both happening simultaneously. And for Anders, I think that's what's going on, is that he's, he's sort of being ignored, but he's also very frightened of being noticed in the wrong way. And it's, it's that he's, he's less visible to people and also more dangerously visible to people simultaneously. Yeah. I feel like in the book, one of the things that really struck me was this need to find hierarchy, this need to create order out of, disorder if i mean it feels like so right this minute politically in america which is where i am that like you know in the book there's this militia or like militant groups that are coming and they're protecting whiteness and lightness and and they're fighting against you know this new villain that is all these dark people and how where what was influencing you or what wasn't influencing you about current events like were you thinking about what you were seeing in the world in the last few years obviously covid you mentioned in america we had this huge racial reckoning that a lot of people heard about <laughs> so i'm wondering yeah. sort of like what sort of hierarchy things you were seeing that you were like this needs to be in here well i think that um it, it was interesting because the the situation that that followed the uh, Biden-Trump election. Mm. Um, you know, I'd, I'd substantially written the book uh, <laughs> at, at, by the end of, uh, end of that year as the election was, you know, uh, uh, being fought over. And I remember watching the events of January uh, 2021, uh, a couple of months after the election, and what happened in D.C. And it was, it was strange to watch in a way because it felt from the world of the novel in a certain sense, that you saw you know, this kind of instinct towards a militia response, um, right. towards you know, a challenging of authority. But on the other hand, these things have been going on for a very long time. Right. So we, we sometimes recognize things now. But of course, you, know, you look back at uh, documentaries of the 1960s, uh, or even further back, and, and we see you know, precisely the same sorts of, of events in the US. But outside the U.S., we're also seeing the same thing. 
Right. So whether it's it's this is impulse towards a you know, sort of pre-immigrant, truly British Britain, you know, in in the Brexit impulse, or you see the rise of Hindutva in Modi's India, or you see sort of uh, Turkish nationalism in Erdogan's Turkey, or or you know the equivalent in Bolsonaro's Brazil or Putin's Russia, or particular kinds of Islam in Pakistan. There's something going on all over the world at the moment where dominant groups are becoming threatened, where they're reacting by kind of fetishizing a sort of purity, and they're rallying around you know strong men, sometimes strong women, but usually strong men, to defend the group. Mm-hmm. And so what looks to us like a very specific and recent American context is actually a much older and much more widespread, I think, phenomenon. Yeah. Were there other... Were You mentioned... Um... Japanese internment, were there other specific moments in history that you were thinking about as you were writing this? When I was a child, I asked my grandfather what the most significant event in his life had been. Mm. And, you know, uh, he had lived through the Second World War and through the arrival of the nuclear bomb and, you know, human beings landing on the moon and all sorts of stuff. And, and I thought he might mention one of those things. And he said it was the partition of India and Pakistan. And I asked him why, because in 1947, the British Empire left uh, what had been British India, a colony, uh, which was then divided into Muslim-majority Pakistan and Hindu-majority India. And Lahore, uh, where my grandfather lived, was on the border and a very mixed city. And he said, look, what happened was that uh, of our two or three neighbors, the houses next to ours, all of them left. Hmm. You know, half of my friends left. I never saw these people ever again. And in partition, what occurred was not just the division of Hindus moving to India and Muslims moving to Pakistan, but enormous violence, hundreds of thousands, perhaps over a million killed, you know, many millions, tens of millions moving. And I think that notion of people suddenly leaving coexistence and deciding in a violent circumstance to separate right. um, is there in kind of the ancestral DNA. And then, of course, one has seen similar things play out in Bosnia. One has seen a similar thing play out perhaps in Ukraine or in mm-hmm. Syria. And it's just been there. But I, I suspect that the idea of partition, of people suddenly being questioned as to whether they were the right kind and forced to move to where their group is, does inform how I think about these things. I want to talk a little bit about form or craft. I don't know. I'm not a writer. I don't know what you guys call it, but I think it's craft. In the book, you use the words dark. You know, they, you say they become dark. I don't believe you ever, you know, say they become brown or black. I'm wondering how you were thinking about your use of language, especially around this transformation. Well, I think uh, the book is, is interested in, in the kind of illusory nation, nature of race, right? Like we imagine race into existence. Sure. Uh, you know, race is not like, you know, a planet or a waterfall, right? That's the right. thing that objectively <laughs> exists. You know, it's, it's something that we sort of make up. You know, the ancient Greeks and 21st Americans would have a very different idea of what race meant, um, if it means anything to the, to the Greeks. So, so this idea of belonging to a race, of other people being part of a race, is something that's been invented for a particular purpose mm. and exists uh, on, on that basis. And in the novel, it's much less a question of saying that Anders has now become a different race, that we are seeing you know, a new race that he belongs to, but rather that, that, that he is leaving a membership in an idea of whiteness, that he is now unable to think of himself or, or to have other people think of him as belonging to this category of whiteness. So when the novel avoids using words of you know, Anders as a particular 
uh, race as, as sort of as black or something like that, because of course those terms are equally fictional. You can right. describe Anders's skin as being brown or being dark, uh, but to call Anders black in these circumstances would be to buy into another fiction. Um, to say that, you know, as whiteness becomes destabilized, blackness remains as a real thing. But, but blackness as a racial category only exists because um, there's this category called whiteness. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that, uh, the second category. Right. Okay. I mentioned earlier that we did Exit West on our first book club episode ever. And I did notice a similarity between these books, which is you are like Mr. Vague. You do not want to tell us where we are. You do not want to tell us when we are. You do not want to tell us a lot of information. So I'm curious what what you think that does for you as a writer, what that does for your reader, what you hope that does for your reader. Why? Talk to us. <laughs> so so I think that, that written fiction is a very interesting thing. And part of what makes it interesting is that of the mass-produced storytelling modes where there's, you know, television, film, um, written fiction. Uh, in, in television and film, you, you get a world that's been quite fully imagined for you. You know, mm. people look like people and this setting looks like the set, you know, a setting and people sound like people. But a book looks nothing like what your experience is. You know, it's a bunch of words on a page. Mm -hmm. And the reader takes those words and imagines them into characters and images and, of course, emotions and sight, sound, smells. So the reader is creating a, 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 an enormous part of what a novel is. You know? And I think that what novelists do is we, we give readers these half novels that readers get to imagine into being full novels. Mm. And reading a novel is a bit like being invited to play make-believe, like when you were a kid and you'd say, you know, we're, we're going to be astronauts or we're going to be um, pirates. And then you, would, you and your friend would sort of imagine that world as, as actually existing. Uh, so I think novels do something similar. And, and so for that reason, I think it's useful to give readers space to imagine. Mm. Uh, so I, I guess, intentionally use very few names in the book. There's just Andrews and Una. Nobody else has a name. The place is unnamed. We don't know exactly where we are. A lot of details are missing. And what that does is it just creates gaps into which the reader is free to insert their own imagining, you know, where is this happening? What does Anders look like? You know, what was Anders's mom like? And what is Anders's father, you know? And that allows the reader to make the book their own book. And I think that for me, it's a hugely important part of what this novel and, and novels generally do, which is this novel doesn't intend to give you, I guess, a message mm. that I could write in a nonfiction form. Like, here's what I think about race. Right. <laughs> Instead, it's let's play this sort of make-believe together. And then let's see how you feel playing make-believe. Let's see how you feel bringing Anders' story to life and Una's story to life and how you feel about it afterwards. And because you've made this novel half yourself, what you're left with, hopefully, is your own reckoning with what you made. And that, for me, is, is what novels do most interestingly, is that they allow readers to create and then readers to look at what they've created. As the artist, as the creator of this world, how much do you know about the place and the people? Like, is there a version where you have either written it down or imagined and you're like, they're specifically at this longitude and latitude. <laughs> like, this is exactly what this looks like. Or are you also sort of unsure about the details of the place? Um, I, in some of my earlier books, I, I guess I, you know, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, 
I had to de-specify the place. I had an idea of the place in more detail than I presented. I intentionally made it, um, you know, a little bit less specific. Mm-hmm. But in this book, I think I didn't do that so much as I, I tried to remember what my role was. Uh, and my role was to be half of a pair of people who were going to imagine this thing. Okay. And so <laughs> it was, that. it was, you know, it was a bit like having a conversation that, you know, it's not that when you have a conversation and you pause and you wait for the person to speak and you interact with each other, that you have imagined necessarily what they're going to say, that you could have just had the conversation by yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly with writing a book, it was not that I took Anders and Una's reality, made it vaguer. Uh, instead, I tried to tell Anders and Una's reality in a way that required somebody else to come and make it fully come to life. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned um, Anders' mom, and and she has recently passed away, or she's passed away in the book. And there's this whole sort of chunk of the book that has to deal deal with grief. And I'm curious how that part made its way into the book. Were you thinking of grief in relationship to race, or were you just thinking of grief as a thing that people deal with, period, regardless? I, I've been obsessed with grief in the last year or so. And so I'm just really, I I love, I was so glad to see it in the book, but I'm curious why it was important for you to put it in. Well, I think that the book is a book of loss. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, Anders loses in a sense his, his racial identity and his racial belonging. And he has also lost, as you said, his mother, Una has lost her father and more recently her brother. They are, you know, seeing their parents, Anders' father and Una's mother, struggling uh, in the world. And they're grappling with this loss. And I think what the book tries to do is to have enormous sympathy and empathy for the feeling of loss, compassion for the feeling of loss, even if one doesn't necessarily have compassion for what is being lost. Mm. So it's one thing to say that somebody can suffer over their loss of a sense of belonging in a racial identity and to actually honor and try to make them the hero of their own story where this loss is of enormous significance without saying the thing being lost is a good thing. Mm. You know, in in the same way that uh, somebody's parent can be a real jerk, but when that parent passes away, the sense of loss of the child is still an enormous uh, uh, experience. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's unrelated, or it might be unrelated to the character of the person who died. Mm-hmm. So so I tried to make these characters into the heroes of their own stories, not just Anders and Una, but Anders' father, Una's mother, I meant to give them the dignity of that, even if in some of their uh, views and some of what they're experiencing, their views um, that are quite different to ones that I hold myself. You mentioned loss, obviously, is a theme of the book. You talked about it in your own experience about how you were like, I've, you know, I've lost something. What have I lost? I'm curious about what is gained. What is gained for these characters or maybe what was gained for you or, or how you see that, that part of it? Well, the two things are very closely related. I think in a human life, anybody who's been to a funeral uh, will know that there's just, in a sense, two sides to it. One is the pain, and sometimes the enormous pain, depending on whose you know, funeral it is and your relationship to that person, of, of this person being gone. But the other is the reminder that it gives you, that we're not here forever, that things are temporary, that everybody loses people that they love, and that this binds us together. 
every funeral is both a ceremony of loss and also an opportunity for a kind of gain, uh, a gain of an insight into ourselves and a gain of a sense of connection to others. And in the same way, the novel explores both of these things. Um, there's the loss of a particular way of life and a particular way of thinking about the world and of, of a particular reality in a way. But there's also the gain of seeing things differently. Mm -hmm. So Anders and Una, for example, when the, when the book begins, their relationship is, is a little bit more transactional. They've both yeah. been through tough times, you know, particularly Una, and they're sort of hooking up as you know, what one does when going through a difficult time. Uh, they probably wouldn't, certainly Una wouldn't have necessarily at the beginning of the book said that, you know, Anders is a person of such great significance in her life. Mm -hmm. But weirdly enough, as Anders changes, as the way he looks changes, as, as, uh, as his belonging to this group, his whiteness starts to disappear, Una gets to see him more clearly. She gets to understand, you know, what Anders really is the things and the elements of his character that are the same, that haven't changed. And she manages to see Anders in a much more deep and profound way than she did before. Oddly enough, Anders' loss of whiteness is revealing of his character to Una. And, and they're able to have a very different kind of relationship, relationship with much more substance than they would have otherwise been able to have. And similarly, you know, um, I don't want to say too much about where the book goes, yeah. But, you know, other characters, uh, you know, Anders' father, who's grappling with a, a very uh, you know, severe terminal illness, he also sees his way to a sort of different relationship with his son. He's, he's not happy about what's happened to his son. He's, he's, in fact, devastated by it. But he is trying to see through to a proper fatherhood to his son despite this. Mm. And so each of the characters, as they lose things, are finding their way to, uh, towards other things. And often what they are finding is, is more profound, in fact, than what they have lost. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Uh, we're back from our break. I want to circle back to one thing that you said because I want to, I'm so curious. You talked about how it, you're one half of this conversation between yourself and the reader about, you know, which, which is the book. How much are you curious about what the reader's side of the conversation is? Like, do you ever want to go to your readers and be like, okay, where did you think it was? Like, what did you think about this? What came up for you? Or, or like when you go on book events, are you interested in hearing that feedback? Or is the writing of the thing, you know, fulfilling enough? I suppose the writing of the thing is fulfilling enough in a way that I'm not, when I'm writing the book, I'm not feeling the enormous absence of being able to know how the reader will respond to this. Mm -hmm. But if I were just writing the book and no one was to read it and no one was ever to respond to it, I might not be able to pretend to myself mm. that it was a way out of you know my solitude. Mm. Uh, uh, what, what writing does is to a writer, you're all by yourself and yet you're not because across time in the future, weeks, months, years, later when somebody actually reads what you're writing now they're going to connect with you mm -hmm. and you're not alone and so that's an enormous part of writing now readers responses are a bit tricky because um it can be very overwhelming to get readers responses uh, and so you know there's a kind of i, I suppose anti-social aspect to being a writer is that you, <laughs> you, know, you don't want to be in the room with two thousand people telling you uh, here's what I think about your book. And of course, some readers will have things that you uh, like to hear. Some will have things you don't like to hear. But I would say that one of the things that makes writing worth doing is every so often you run into a reader mm -hmm. and they will say something very personal about something you've written. And you'll think it's true. It does connect people. Mm -hmm. This person and myself have connected without meeting through this crazy, strange medium. Mm -hmm. and And that's enormously profound and also um, encouraging. And I think without that, it would feel very strange to do. But, but no, I'm not thinking of the reader's reaction in great detail when I'm writing. I'm just, I suppose, believing that mm. it will happen. I love that. Okay, this is, a, this is a question. I don't know. This might be a dumb question, but I have to ask. How do you name your characters? Uh, so lately, it's been kind of infrequently basically is how I name them you know in my, in my previous book there were just two characters say the Nadia 
Uh, in the one before that, uh, there were no characters with names. Um, and in this book, there are, again, two characters with names, Anders and Una. Uh, those particular names, for me, were doing something. So when I wrote The Reluctant Fundamentalist, my second novel, 15 years uh, before this one, uh, in that novel, the character Chinggis is somebody who identifies as Muslim and is seen by other people as being Muslim, but isn't particularly religious. You know, he drinks, he doesn't fast, he doesn't pray, he doesn't think about the Quran. He's kind of a secular humanist as far as we can tell, but, but yet he identifies as Muslim and is seen as, as that. And in that novel, in a way, I used his voice as a way of communicating a kind of Muslimness and of, of playing with certain stereotypes of what it might mean to be Muslim, because there's no such thing as, you know, what a Muslim is. Everybody's different from everybody else. And it was this sort of kind of anachronistic, uh, formal, maybe slightly menacing voice, which played with certain stereotypes of what Islam might be like. Mm. And in the same way in this novel, you know, Anders and Una are, are, are playing with something. Uh, uh, they, they're names that feel like they come from a kind of primeval white place. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's not exactly clear geographically where they are, but um, Anders in particular is a name which means manly. Um, it can also mean uh, stranger. And that root appears in many European languages. And I thought the idea of this sort of manly but yet stranger figure um, and this particular name and with Una, it was, in a sense, there was something so uh, from the mists of time for me about Una as a name. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that this pairing, it felt like they came from a kind of ancient place, even if, of course, these are names that exist in the contemporary world. So I named Anders and Una, I guess, on feel. Mm. And uh, uh, that's often how I, how I think about names. I love I love that. I was like, after I read your book, I can't even remember what it was, but I read another book right after and there was an Anders in it. And I was like, whoa, I've never <laughs> seen an Anders in a book before. But I, I, I think it was a nonfiction book and it was actually the person's name. I can't quite remember though. Um, they, anyway, they're out there. They're out there. <laughs> they are. They are. I was like. Yeah, more, more Anderses than Unas. Yes, certainly. Um, okay. This is something that I talked to all my authors with uh, all the authors I speak with about, which is how do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? How often is there music or no? Are you, you know, having snacks and beverages? Are there rituals around it? How do you write? So the way I write has changed over time. When I was in my twenties writing my first novel, Mott Smoke, uh, much of that novel was written, you know, between midnight and dawn sort of vampire style. Oh. It would go out with my friends and come back and then write until the wee hours and then go to sleep. Uh, and that felt like in my 20s a perfectly uh, legitimate way to write, particularly when I was a student. And now I'm uh, 51 and I've got two children. Uh, and the best time to write is in the mornings when I'm fresh and when they're in school. Okay. And, so, and so what I tend to do is I tend to get up um, I try to avoid engaging too much with the internet in the morning. I try to go for a walk, uh, uh, go for a long walk and just sort of go from my dreams into walking and thinking. And then from my walk, I try to sit down at my desk and a good writing day. If I get three or four hours of good writing in, uh, before lunchtime, uh, I, I will feel like I will, you know, that would, that would have been a good day. Sometimes it's much less. Uh, and sometimes it's so much that I don't have lunch and I keep working into the afternoon and the kids come home and then 
the chaos of, of, <laughs> of a house with kids begins. And I try to write through it sometimes. But it's, it's mostly mornings. And uh, the other thing is there's, there's no music. It's quiet. Uh, I, I try almost religiously not to use the internet. So uh, I'll have my, my dictionaries and my other reference materials in sort of a print form in my study. Because wow. it, it's amazing how, uh, you know, quote unquote, research mm-hmm. uh, can transform into weeks of procrastination before you realize what you've done. <laughs> I'm so, familiar. <laughs> so I think if you, if you just limit your research to something that can't go very far, although it's amazing how distracting a dictionary can become if you let it. <laughs> and I, I, I guess the other maybe slightly peculiar way about how I write is that a typical writing day will probably involve more of me pacing around my study mm. with a printout of my manuscript in my hands, the pages I've been writing today, reading them out loud over and over again. I'll probably spend more time doing that than actually typing into the computer. Mm. I, I, I think that you know we, we often imagine that we write and read sort of with our eyes, um, that's what we see on the page. But I, I think quite strongly that writing is something that really comes to the neural circuitry of our ears it's, mm. it's something you can you can hear and so for me i read it over and over again until it sounds right and that's how i edit myself i love that you did not mention any snacks or beverages are those involved at all you know i um uh i tend not to be a breakfast person so okay. i i break my daily fast with lunch uh, okay. i try to keep it simple i try to be sleep walk write and then everything else. Eat, so no water, internet. no coffee, no tea, no water. I have water. I have, I, you know, I might, I might brush my teeth. It's not, it's not, I'm not a complete extremist, right. but, right. but, um, but, uh, no, there's, there's no real food or, uh, and there's, there's minimal reading because what, what I find is that that state of waking up and then taking that state into a walk and then taking that walk into a sitting at my desk and, and beginning that flow feels feels good to me. Mm. If something interrupts it, making a meal, taking a call, checking my phone, um, it's quite possible it's, it'll stay interrupted. I Whereas see. if if nothing interrupts it, it won't be interrupted. So right. just through trial and error, I've come to the uh, very simple, you know, wake up, uh, walk, you know, drink water while writing, uh, write uh, kind of uh, uh, continue. I, it's very monastic. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, the first, the first half of the day is a little bit monastic, and then yeah. all quickly falls apart with. Then you uh, just go you nuts. Know, <laughs> yeah, with the chaos of the kids, and then you know. But um, so many writers I know, you have to find some kind of practice mm. to make this thing work, mm-hmm. because it, it's actually a very simple profession uh, or calling, and and the calling is it's keep a few hours of each day empty for writing. You don't have to even write. If you're sitting there trying to write for a few mm. hours each day and you have that, that hole, uh, a hole of a size of a few hours every day, the amazing thing is that something fills it. You know, you can wait out, uh, nothing coming and something will eventually come. And so in a sense, writing for me is about making that well or making that womb mm. and then trusting something will come into it. The idea that I can sort of force myself to a good writing day is one that I've abandoned long ago. Uh, I, I just have to show up, wait. I think there was, I forget who it was, but there was a writer who said that, you know, your job is you show up at your shop, you raise the shutters every morning, and you wait. Mm. And some days a customer will come, and some days no customer will come. But you raise the shutters, and then at the end of the day, you close the shutters, and you've done your job. 
And I think that's, that's it for me too, is you show up, make the empty space and then see. Yeah. I like that. Just removing the sort of self judgment, just do, do the work, do the work. Yeah. Well, or, or, uh, it's almost have the intention and do no other work. Mm. Um, uh, I think, I think do the work. Uh, it's partly why I don't roll out of bed and go straight to my desk. Right. Do the work can sometimes be quite intimidating. Sure. Um, particularly when you have, <laughs> when you, when you have no idea how this novel is going to work or you've gotten yourself into a mess and you have no idea what the way out is, which happens a lot. I think do the work, it, it, it can be tricky, but show up, do nothing else and have mm-hmm. the intention of this work yeah. and see what happens then. For me is, is, is I suppose the way I avoid um, my own panic and I avoid my own <laughs> writer's block and I just, um, I just show up and, and wait. Yeah. You've been writing for a long time. You're an acclaimed writer. The people love you. Barack Obama loved Exit West. Not that it matters because I loved it and that I'm ultimately the final say in what is good. But <laughs> did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Like, was this something that you always felt called to do? Or was there a moment in your life where you were like, that now I know, now I want to write? I was a total fantasist as a kid. So I used to always pretend being, you know, things. Um, I can see it in my own children as well. Hmm. You know, my, my, my son will be roaring down the halls and pretending to be Godzilla at any given moment. <laughs> and he's sort of fully committed, his passionate roar, the veins on his neck are you know, trembling <laughs> with effort. And, uh, and I was like that. And, um, and I read a lot. And I had a you know, very active imagination. But I didn't think I wanted to be a writer because I didn't know that people were writers. Mm. I mean, in theory, there was this notion that, of course, somebody wrote these books and there were these people called writers. But it seemed it seemed completely crazy that that any you know that I could be that. Um, I didn't know anybody who was a writer growing up. And I arrived at university, and there was a woman across the hall from me, and she was taking this creative writing class. She told me, and I said, you know, what is it? And she said, well, you know, it's just like any other class and you show up, it's pass fail and you write some <laughs> short stories. And I said, so you, you show up to this class, you make up stories, you hand them into the teacher, professor. Um, it's not really graded and it's treated just like any other class. And, and she said, yeah. And I said, you know, I have to get, <laughs> I have to get <laughs> into one of these classes. And then when I started doing it, I, I discovered that I loved it. Um, and, and I think another big part of it for me was I had these professors, people like you know, Joyce Carol Oates. And, and in my final year, when I began my first novel, uh, Toni Morrison. Uh, and, and to have people like that read your work, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's you, I mean, you learn, of course, from them as, as professors. But more almost than the learning is they give you permission to imagine that you could be a writer. Mm. If writers of that magnitude are reading your stuff and engaging with it like it matters, you think, you know, maybe I can believe in doing this. Wow. And so I suspect if I, if I hadn't gone to university and studied with those writers, it's not that I, might, I couldn't have learned the skills somehow. I probably never would have allowed myself to believe I, I, I could do it and I would have wound up doing something else with my life. So it was very fortuitous that, that uh, it happened. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm quite grateful. In fact, probably out of my university experience, the fact that I got to be with writers who read my stuff and made me think that I could be one is is the most important thing that happened. Wow. As someone who's written a bunch, people have favorably loved your work. Does it make it harder to keep writing? Like, is there a pressure that you feel? And if there is, how do you negotiate that to keep, you know, showing up and, and with the intention to do the work? 
I wouldn't say it's a pressure as such. Um, Each of the books I've written has come from a kind of desperate need. Uh, You know, Mott Smoke, the first one was trying to look at Pakistan with my weirdly half Pakistani, like half Western perspective. Mm -hmm. And then Dr. Fundamentalist was the reverse, was like looking back at the U.S., and particularly around that post 9-11 moment um, from a point of view that was partially American, but also very strongly Pakistani. And how to get filtration rising Asia was having moved back to Pakistan and looking at this uh, incredibly money-dominated society. Um, what, what can one find when one looks at that? How do you look at this place? And, and in a sense, how do I de-exoticize it and see it for myself? And and then Exit West was, as somebody who's moved around so much in my life, to see a world where migrants are now being portrayed as this kind of villain, um, as, as something that must be stopped when it's the basic human condition is to have migrated forever. It was something I felt quite personally, and I felt, I felt that I had to do something fictionally uh, engaging with that. And, and then the new one, in a sense, uh, The Last White Man, really is my feeling as a mongrelized, you know, hybridized sort of person. That if we are moving into a world where we fetishize purity, where the most important thing is whether you belong to a particular dominant group in your society, um, that's a disaster for people like me. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a disaster Same. for everybody. Yeah, I think it's a disaster for everybody, but, it, it, but it's certainly a disaster for people, I suppose, like, like us. And, um, and, so, and so there was a very personal uh, uh, reason to write that. And, and, uh, and as far as, you know, um, career and, and acclaim or prizes and that sort of stuff is, con- is concerned, it's, it's amazing how each time it feels like I have no idea how I'm going to write this book. Um, I have no idea how people are going to respond. I'm you know, vaguely terrified and I'm trying to figure it out. And, uh, and, and that seems quite consistent, even though I've written, you know, six books now and five novels. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm equally clueless and equally terrified as, as, as before. This is the most important question I'm going to ask you. And you mentioned you use a physical dictionary. So I'm curious if this is going to be a thing or not. What's a word that you cannot spell correctly on the first try? I'm going to answer your question in a slightly longer way, if it's okay. Of, of um, course, it's a podcast. <laughs> my spelling my spelling is atrocious. Oh, yay, me too. Uh, in fact, it, it, when you asked the question, it made me think about why I write the way I write. Okay. So when I was when I was a little kid, I spent ages three to nine in California, uh, zero to three in Pakistan, and nine to eighteen in Pakistan. But three to nine in California. Where in California? Uh, in the Bay Area. My dad was doing his PhD at Stanford. So oh, I'm uh, from look, Oakland, and my oh, there you go. My in-laws both went to Stanford. Oh, well, there you go. So yeah. small world. So yeah. we were, you know, uh, I was I was in the Bay Area, and a funny thing happened. My my teachers called in my parents and said, "Look, you know, uh, there's a problem with your son's writing." You know, he he can't write, and they would show these pages of <laughs> legible scribbles, and uh, and they put me in this in this class briefly, which is I guess a kind of special education class. It was never made clear to me what I was doing, but the room, from what I remember, had these mirrored windows where people from the outside couldn't see who was inside, so you knew it was it was clearly not desirable to be in there if they were hiding, you know, who was in right. there, and um, and fortunately, the teacher in there said, "Look, just do me a favor, just just block print." I started writing in all caps. And the teacher said, oh, you write just fine. You know, you, um, your spelling is really bad. Your <laughs> handwriting is atrocious. You, you know, get your letters mixed up uh, quite a bit. But, you know, it's quite clear what you're trying to say. 
So go back to class and tell them you don't need to write in cursive script and you don't need to worry about your spelling. You're just going to write uh, in all block caps uh, how, you, how you want to write. And so I went back and did that. And I, I sort of wrote that way for you know, many, many, many years thereafter through mm. college and grad school. And, and what happens is if you write very slowly and if you struggle with things like spelling and legibility, you have to figure out how to write carefully and, and thoughtfully. And so you ask the question about the word that I have difficulty spelling. It actually turns out that my difficulty spelling and my difficulty writing led me to a kind of writing style where I would try to write less and express more. Mm. And so the fact that I'm a terrible speller uh, <laughs> has something to do with the fact that I'm a novelist today and that of all the kids in my elementary school class, the one who couldn't write is the one who actually you know, is writing for a living now. I love this story. It's giving me a bad speller hope for my future, though Absolutely. I don't plan to write anytime ever. Um, but Mosin, I need a word, at least one. <laughs> ah, let me think. Um, huh. Does traveling have two L's or one L? No clue. I bet it has five. <laughs> and, and the other trick is, of course, that there's British and American spelling. Oh, sure. Which, which is completely confusing to me. So, um, you know, Those sometimes, yeah, color, sometimes color, color will look, yeah, program. Oh, uh, I mean, you know, there, there are certain words where I look at in British spelling. I think, no, this is this is this is too much. The program <laughs> with a double me feels, you know, uh, feels like you know, you, that that seems a little a little too uh, archaic. I love but, that. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, uh, there are other words like color, for example, where that you seems kind of interesting. Uh, oh, or or center where the R coming after the E seems sort of interesting. Oh yeah, like theater, so, the yes. two theaters. Love that. For people who love the Last White Man, what books would you recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with what you've done? Well, I mean, some of the books that have been most um, influential for me uh, when I was a kid in high school in Pakistan, I remember reading uh, "No Longer at Ease" by Chinua Achebe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Achebe you know, is, a, is a foundational uh, writer, I think, for, for many of us uh, who come from the Global South or who spent time in the Global South. But I remember reading him uh, as a teenager. And Things Fall Apart is perhaps the one that's, that's more often read. But No Longer at Ease is the story of a young man who goes off to study in Britain, comes back to Nigeria, and then has this idea of, um, of, of not doing things in the old uh, corrupt, you know, uh, Nigerian way, and instead bringing this this new way of looking at things. And of course, things don't go well for the poor guy. And there's a, <laughs> there's a wonderful, I guess, proverb, which is which comes up in the novel, uh, which is if you're going to eat a, a frog, make sure it's a big, fat, juicy one. <laughs> and uh, and so our, our, our hero uh, falls um, uh, committing a very minor sin uh, when he could have committed much bigger ones. But it, it, it really shook me, that book. And uh, uh, I mentioned, you know, Toni Morrison as a teacher, obviously as a writer, she's you know, incredibly significant. Uh, I was once having lunch with her and she caught me reading Jazz, mm. uh, her novel which had just come out, and, and she, she signed it for me. And then she said, read Beloved. <sighs> it's, it's good. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, she said it in this way. I mean, the thing about Toni Morrison was that when she, would, she, she spoke uh, almost better than she wrote mm. uh, or at least as good mm-hmm. you know she could have read the back of a cornflake box and you'd think this is like the nobel address 
Um, and uh, and so you know, and, and of course I did read it, and it was it was magnificent. Another writer, I guess, two more who come to mind. Um, uh, another one is James Baldwin, who I think was you know incredibly insightful as an essayist, but also you know the first hundred pages of Another Country is probably just as you know as beautiful English language prose as ever been written by mm. anyone. It's it's near perfect. And and the last person I'd, I'd mention is Edward Said and and Orientalism and uh, uh, incredibly important thinker and 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 I think in a sense in, in a conversation with Baldwin in many ways that that both Said and Baldwin uh, would point out that there was a need to create this group um, and to gaze upon a group which wasn't because of the nature of the group being gazed upon but by the need to establish the group that was gazing. Mm. And uh, and I think that's something which I certainly took with me uh, into this book. I love that. Okay. Last question, though I don't really want to let you go, but I will. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Whew. Wow. Um, <laughs> that is very, very, uh, that's very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, three people jump to mind and I'll okay. pick one. Okay. So three people I'd like to read it would be Jorge Luis Borges, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison. And I think I'll go with Toni Morrison because after I was her student, I never met her again in, in person. There were some times mm-hmm. when I was supposed to be an event or that she was supposed to be an event and we just never, our paths never crossed. And I would be curious, you know, what she thinks. I'd be slightly terrified to be very sure. honest. Uh, you know, um, I still have, the first draft of my first novel with her beautiful uh, fountain pen written uh, uh, comments on the back. Um, but it, it would be a kind of coming full circle to say, um, you know, what do you think now? Wow. And, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 would, I would really love for that to happen. You're going to make me cry. I'm feeling very <laughs> emotional. Mohsen, this was such a dream come true. I as I mentioned before, you are our first ever book club pick. And when I picked the book and when we started the show, I never, ever thought I would ever get to speak to you at, ever. So this is just, I'm emotional. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this book, The Last White Man. People, as you're listening, the book is now out in the world. You can get it wherever you get your books. It's slim. It's juicy. There's no spelling errors that I could find. But, you know, who knows? Who Maybe you'll find one. Mohsen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tracy. My pleasure. Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Mohsen again for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Lori Ann Plata for helping make this interview possible. Don't forget our book club pick for August is How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi, which we will discuss on August 31st with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. If you love the show and want inside access to it, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of the Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 